1: President and CEO of the Multi Law Firm. I am delighted to invite you to discuss today's topic about litigation trends that we have been observing both across the country and specifically at the Multi Law Firm. Joining me on today's panel are my esteemed, brilliant, smart, knowledgeable colleagues who have been with the firm for, in one case, over two decades and another case coming close to two decades. I think between the three of us, we probably have over a century worth of years of immigration law experience, which may say more about our age than about our brilliance, but our goal is to share useful cutting edge information to help you plan whether you're an employer, an employee, an individual, a family member, whatever. So obviously our topic is immigration litigation, which in general is against the government. Uh, which is our focus, obviously, for today's topic. We're all very familiar with the idea of suing the government, uh, or at least heard of it, even if you personally have not filed a lawsuit yourself. Um, What we've been seeing is that with the prior administration, there were a lot of lawsuits filed because of different interpretations pertaining to U.S. immigration law, requiring the employers to make a decision on what would be the best course of action. And although many of us are quite pleased by the current Biden administration, federal litigation option continues to remain an important tool for anyone who is trying to seek benefits in today's immigration landscape. So the kinds of issues that we're going to, the, we're going to get into a little details, talk about some few cases. Uh, sometimes we feel like why should we spend the time, effort and energy filing a lawsuit if you can just file either a motion and appeal or sometimes even file a new case, because that may be faster than waiting for two or three years for the administrative appeals office to respond to an appeal. Um, and that would be fine. And that's something you would think about it and discuss it with your attorneys on what may make sense and whether the time, effort, and energy is worthwhile for multiple options including to show that you don't want to take something lying down or do you have a policy reason for wanting to pursue a lawsuit or litigation. And so with that background and information, I am going to invite Aaron Finkelstein who has been the managing attorney as we, I think we were talking earlier today for over 15 years at the Moosey Law Firm, the backbone and the right hand on a lot of issues um, pertaining to, in general, and coming up with strategies, uh, et cetera. So, Aaron, why is litigation still popular for employers, employees, individuals, and families to consider?
0: So, you know, I think the the crucial point when it comes to employment, employers, is a cost-benefit analysis. If you think about it, the denial rate overall for H-1B petitions, uh, going back to uh, going back to uh, to 2015, uh, you were looking at a denial rate of roughly about six percent. Where in the last couple of years, it seems to have risen from six percent to twenty to thirty percent. So when you're looking at such a significant rise in the uh, denial rates it becomes something that people say that we need to go forward and we need to find another avenue. Otherwise, it's problematic to play, to have our employees perform their work. It's expensive. And when it becomes so expensive to do it, it's better to look at the alternatives such as litigation. Now, it is true that under the Biden administration, uh, the numbers have leveled off. But even if it's leveled off since 2019, which is at a 21%, it seems to have remained at a 21%. Uh, and this is similar to the denial rate, by the way, for the initial employments, which rose again from six percent in 2015 for initial H1Bs to 21 percent through the for, through the third quarter of uh, of the fiscal year for 2020. So I think the first factor that I would say is a significant these denials that people are seeing, even under Biden, even under. The fact that they seem to be evening out, they're still extremely high, and it still seems to be a cost-benefit analysis to go forward with uh, with litigation. I think the second reason why I would say we're seeing a lot of litigation is because the government plays a lot of the hide the ball. In other words, they issue one RFE, and they say these are things that we need or things that we want, and then the next week they'll issue a different type of RFE, and the next week they'll issue a different type of RFE. And when they keep issuing inconsistent RFEs or asking for different things that are unexpected, uh, that kind of creates a weariness factor where people are saying, I don't know what comes next, I don't know how to prepare, I don't know what documents that I need. And litigation kind of forces the government to consolidate what their expectations are, especially when you win the litigation, to consolidate what their expectations are from the individual, from the employer, and it allows there to be more uniformity in the process, uh, which I think is also a very big deal. And finally, I think everybody got used to Trump getting sued all the time. It's lawsuits and using the courts wasn't such a scary thing anymore because people were using it to decide should this should this new law came out, Trump passed the law, oh, 26 states are suing, et cetera. I'm, jo- I'm joking a little bit, but I am saying that people realized that as a third branch of government, the judicial, the judiciary was a effective tool and not something as scary as they thought before. So I think these three components combined is a result of why we're seeing an uptick in litigation right now.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron. Makes a lot of sense that we have all these fabulous sort of reasons why people have become more comfortable suing. And one of the most common common ways of trying to sue the government is to telling them because they're taking forever in a day is to file what we call referred to as a writ of mendamus or mendamus or WOM as we sometimes refer to it in short form for the Latin phrase for just give me an answer. And so I'm going to invite our in-house resident litigation expert, our own Adam (coughs) Rosen, who's been with the firm for, as I said, I think well past maybe 15 years at this point and just very, very um, creative, and proactive to helping employers, employees, and individuals as we file these lawsuits. So although I might act as the moderator, he's truly our litiga- in-house litigation expert. So Adam, explain what's already of mandamus, give a little bit of background for our clients and people here sure. on this conference call.
2: Sure. So mandamus, I think, is probably the most commonly used type of litigation in the immigration field. And even before... Uh, everybody got comfortable um, suing along with all the other states over challenging a particular rule. The mandamus was what uh, immigration lawyers, especially employers, started picking up to deal with the major problem, which is a delay on getting a decision. And so basically, when you file a writ for a writ of mandamus with the federal court, you're saying to the court, please order the government to make a decision. And the only kind of limitation there is on what you can sue for a mandamus is where the law requires the government to make a decision. So that means you can use it for H-1B petitions, I-140 petitions. Um, you can use it for an I-485 in most courts, uh, H-4 applications, EADs, I-485s, uh, non-immigrant and immigrant visas. We've filed them for um, individuals waiting for an immigrant visa application for the green card Um quite a number of more um, from the H-1B visa side where people have been stuck waiting for the H-1B visa to be issued. So despite the changes that, we've already, that you guys have already mentioned about the Biden administration, the processing delays have still continued. And I think what, what I've noticed is that particularly for um, H-4s, EADs and the I-45s, this is still, this is still a big problem. Um, I think the EADs have gotten to be more of a problem because people are actually doing what the government intended when they created the H-4 EAD, which is getting jobs and working in these jobs and wanting to continue in these jobs. So uh, given the fact that it still takes so long, people are turning to the um, mandamus as a way to sue for a decision. So there's no people ask what's required. What do I need to do in order to file the mandamus? So technically speaking, there's no one specific requirement. In part because you can file it on any kind of application that the government is required to make a decision. The the basic thing that the go- that the court is looking for, for you to show is that that you qualify for what's called an extraordinary remedy. That is, my name is an extraordinary remedy. And so what might be requ- what might be necessary in one case might not be necessary in another case. So what we generally recommend to people is that try to make some effort on your own to follow up with the particular agency that has the case. Um, and ba- this is based on what's available. So if you have an H-1B visa that's pending for, you know, at the consulate, there's a limited number of ways that you can actually follow up. You can, you know, email the, consular, the consulate. You can go to the congressman's office. But that's pretty much it. And there's really not a lot that either is going to accomplish, the email of the congressman. And so it might be reasonable, especially because the employment might disappear, the, you know, if you have somebody at a client site or if there's a major project, whatever it might be, that this person needs to be back, going the route of a lawsuit to force a decision by mandamus might be more reasonable after, let's say, two months versus somebody who has an I-45 application that has been pending for, you know, maybe six months or maybe even a year. Depending on how long the visa number has been current, what steps have been taken, um, where where the cases along along the queue you may be able to get away with filing a metodamus after less time, or it might be more appropriate for more time. Um, so, again, overall, whatever the this, this kind of case you're going to sue over, we generally re- recommend try to take advantage of whatever avenues are available to try and follow up. And at a certain point, you make a judgment call about you're comfortable with going ahead, understanding that there's no guarantee it's going to be an approval, but what you're doing is you want to make a decision and want to force the government's hand to actually make the decision.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense uh, uh, for, for in terms of the background. And I know that one example that we often talk about is, of course, where mandamus has proved to be fairly important and common is with the H-4EAD that Adam just alluded to. Uh, the mandamus cases, there were hundreds if not thousands of people who were affected because it prevents you from making a living, paying your mortgage or your rent or buying a car or traveling to work. And it's so directly impactful when, as I said, that's exactly why the government issued the regulations allowing H-4EADs to get the EAD card to work to contribute to the family's financial stability and success. So in a couple years ago, two or three years ago, when the U.S. almost pretty much stopped processing H-4EAD applications and EADs, as a part of the prior administration's goal to pers- to delay issuing EADs, uh, and purposefully spent more time, effort, and energy separating the H-1 and the H-4 petitions, which make any sense because it's so much more efficient and cost effective to process them both together. We saw that it started creating delays uh, and. Then they added the new requirement of biometrics for H4 applicants. And even after the USCIS stopped requiring biometrics, the processing delay seemed to have become, a, you know, par for the course. And while we see that the ability to work in some circumstances is now permitted based on a pending EAD application, uh, you know, this has helped to some extent, but still, it has not completely solved the problem because the person still needs to get the, H1, uh, the H4 one the h extension approved within the U.S., which could take, again, 8 to 13 months, or the person has to travel abroad, come back, get an H4 status in order to be able to work on that EAD right. card, which is what we've recommended to people. Um, and so in such cases, sometimes the mandamus lawsuit can provide you, whether you're the employer or the individual affected, with the option of forcing the USCIS to make a decision. And while delayed H-4 and DAD applications are increasingly the subject of mandamus cases, people are also turning to mandamus for many other types of cases like delays in immigrant visas or H-4 visa applications at consulates. In fact, a consultation I just did this afternoon was the the consulate had just out of the blue just apparently told the individual employee your H-1 petition has been revoked and the employer doesn't know nobody knows anything about it uh can you sue maybe maybe not they at least need to understand if their h1 petition was revoked and uscis hasn't contacted them nothing's happened what is going on we can't just act like it's some uh you know country which doesn't have a democracy and the rule of law thank god for that and filing against lawsuits against the government is one of the hallmarks of a democracy and what a great country that we have this this fantastic option to say, don't treat me like I am not worthy of the laws and the rights and the protections afforded to me under the U.S. Constitution and under the laws and the statutes. So let's jump to the next hot topic, which is venue, because one of the things people always ask is, you know, where am I supposed to file it? What are the rules? So Aaron, can I invite you to do that?
0: Sure. So as she will mention that venue is as one of the requirements in every lawsuit, and it's that the court have uh, venue over the case. So, what is venue? Venue is a legal requirement that a case be filed with a court that has a reasonable connection to the dispute. So, for example, let's take a case, a uh, 45 application. Uh, you look at the file when you're looking at the 45 application to see which court would have venue, or if a court could qualify having venue. see where is the i-45 application pending where does the i-45 applicant live the location that is the answer to these questions is usually going to be uh where you file that lawsuit um but the idea behind venue the venue concept is that the case be filed at a location that's also convenient for the individual And for many years, mandamus lawsuits were primarily filed uh, as the federal court located in Washington, D.C., because D.C. was where the USCIS headquarters was located. However, because so many lawsuits have been filed uh, with the courts in the D.C. district, that the courts have become overwhelmed. The government has become overwhelmed. The courts have become overwhelmed. And therefore, a lot of times, the government will ask that the then you be transferred to another federal court or another location so because of this it's important to consider when and where you file your case uh whether when and where you file the case and whether it should be filed in washington dc or not thank cases. you so
1: much aaron yeah i aaron. know adam wanted to jump in and add something
2: yeah so there are some cases that can still be filed in federal court in washington dc and that uh, we haven't seen or heard from other people of any of any problem so if you have a visa application that's delayed because the person's actually outside of the united states and so they're at the consulate so since this is all about the department of state um then and there's and the consulates that are outside of the united states filing the lawsuit against them in the washington dc federal court is usually fine and thankfully so far we haven't had any issue uh, any issue with that. Um, there are, um, there's are. there been a, one other shift that has sort of happened re- in the last year or so is that um, cases that came out of the Administrative Appeals Office at USDIS, they moved to Maryland. And so we're able to start filing lawsuits over that kind of decision in a law firm's own home district in the federal court here in Maryland. It, that's downtown from our office. Um, and that now that USDIS is, I think, fully headquartered and Maryland um, filing lawsuits against USCIS in Maryland is technically possible. Um, we saw recently um, just in the last couple of months that there was a whole batch of cases that were filed together that uh, were transferred out of Maryland, but I suspect that that's in part because it was just such a large volume. So um, we're trying to file we try to file strategically in the locations um, and primarily because Um, This is something I think that most people who are filing lawsuits like mandamus cases are going to the specific location where the case is, um, the the file is located or the person lives. And for the most part, that's been working out well um, and haven't run into any kind of effort by the government to try to transfer the cases.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. And, you know, so jumping right into the kinds of issues that we've seen in the litigation um, you know, playing out of course is the most common one, which many of you, whether you're employers or employees, is denied by USCIS based on the H 1B employer employee job duties not being within quotes in a specialty occupation. And so, uh, what the USCIS starts off usually is saying, hey, you didn't meet, they used to say, you didn't meet all of these four criteria. And of course, it was never all of the four criteria because the law says it's either one or two or three or four, but four has two parts and it is this and this. And just by quick, to refresh everyone's recollection um, so that we can you know analyze and appreciate it, there are four different ways to show that a job is a specialty occupation position. Uh, One is that the job actually requires a U.S. bachelor's or a higher degree uh, or its equivalent that is the normal for entry into the occupation for that particular position, or two, that the bachelor's degree requirement is common to the industry or the job that the employer is offering is so complex or unique that it can be performed only by an individual with the bachelor's degree in that specific area sub area, et cetera, regardless of what the rest of the industry requires, or third, that the employer normally requires a bachelor's degree or its equivalent for the position, or four, that the nature of the specific duties in the job that the employer is offering is so specialized and so complex that the knowledge required by a person to perform those job duties is normally gained. By earning a bachelor's or a higher degree, and now you know just to sort of delve a little bit into it, and I'm going to have Aaron go over some more cases. But there are federal, several federal court decisions on this issue over the years, with some significant decisions that continue to be helpful when specialty occupation questions are raised in RFEs. And the first case that we often talk about—it's called Inspection Expert Corporation case. What's this case about? The U.S. District Court, in North Carolina ruled against the USCIS, saying that the government improperly denied the H-1 petition after the USCIS had claimed that the position did not qualify as a specialty occupation. And in this this H-1 petition, the employer had said that the job required a bachelor's degree or higher in mechanical engineering, computer science, or a related technical or engineering field USCIS was said, no, 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 that's not specialty because it's way too broad. Uh, the, uh, the options the employer is loving, and under the law, in order for it to be a specialty occupation, they said the job has to require a degree that will prepare you with the knowledge so that there needs to be some connection or relationship between the degree and the job. The court, however, responded back that the USCIS interpretation was very broad and unreasonable. So again... Sure. Many people may say, you know what, it's too risky, don't do it, but guess what, it worked. Inspection expert decided to invest the time, effort, money to sue, and thank God they got their approval, and now they have this valuable resource within their company. Next, Aaron, I know there are a couple other yeah. very useful cases like or well, v. Wilkie that you want to talk about.
0: I do, but the, the funny thing is with inspection inspection expert case, that court that case was that it followed on the heels of the Kaiser v. Wilkie and uh, without getting into too much detail and too far into the woods, but Kaiser v. Wilkie was a Supreme Court decision in which they talked about um, whether a federal court is supposed to accept a government agency's interpretation of its own regulations, and whether the court should rather say stop and say, nope, your interpretation is not making any sense. So the, the agency promulgates the regulation, it goes for notice and comment, it's finalized, they own that regulation, And then when they're making their interpretations, um, you know, if it's a strained interpretation, how much should we give deference? Or should we say, okay, it's their agency, their interpretation, their regulation. And this case was one of the first immigration related cases where the federal judge analyzed whether the USCIS's interpretation of its own H1B regulations we're entitled to that deference of deferring to the agency or agreement by the court under this Kaiser, v. Wilkie decision. So it's kind of pr- a pretty big deal. And in this inspect inspection, expert decision, uh, the judge determined that the USCIS's interpretation was not entitled to a deference So even though it was their regulations, they promulgated it, they weren't entitled to stretch it as far as they wanted to do, who they wanted to, and they actually ruled in favor of the company. And uh, I think the principle and idea behind this case about USCIS interpreting its own regulations also applies to other types of cases as well. So I don't think this is the last that we're going to hear of the effect of Wilkie v. Kaiser.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron, and I'm going to invite Adam We're to maybe jump in and talk together. about a couple of other cases, uh, like the tailor-made software case, which are regarding computer systems analysts.
2: Yeah, Sheila, that was an interesting case because I think that everybody's run into this situation, and uh, it's um, less common um, for um, this problem seeming to come up since USAID has introduced the RFPs, but... Um, it, it, it was about, it involved a, an H 1B case or a computer systems analyst, which historically has been sometimes troublesome uh, getting RFEs. And USCIS you know, loves to quote from the Department of Labor's Occupational Outlook Handbook, um, which says that some employers will accept less than a bachelor's degree. Um, and so USCIS would say, because it says some employers will accept less, therefore it doesn't qualify. So in Taylor made the federal court um, disagreed with USCIS and basically said that the handbook says that a bachelor's degree is common, although not always a requirement, and since com- and common should be interpreted as normally, the court said, and this makes sense to everybody um, in that instance, and unfortunately others, it didn't make sense to USCIS, but the court ruled for Taylor made and held that the the regulatory criteria is not whether such a degree is always required or whether some employers don't require it, just that it is common and normal to be required. So, um, sort of tying back to what Aaron's talking about in the um, inspection expert case with how the government is interpreting its regulations. So, this is also good because it is a reminder of the importance of sometimes considering whether the government's interpretation is um, reasonable or unreasonable.
1: So, in another case involving the Department of Labor's OOH or the Occupational Outlook Handbook, the court basically ruled against the USCIS and in doing so basically the judge said that from the court's perspective, the handbook's statement that a bachelor's degree in computer science or information science is common, although not always a requirement, supports rather than disproves the proposition that a specialized degree or its equivalent is normally the minimum requirement. So basically, the court said the fact that such a degree is not always required or that some firms hire at a computer systems analysts with general business or liberalized degrees does not mean or suggest that a specialty degree is not normally required in that particular industry. So with that, I'm going to invite you, Aaron, to talk about the Indian House case.
0: Yes, yeah, so the Indian House case uh, also follows a similar trend in which the federal court made a decision uh, and this was from the court located in Rhode Island where the judge ruled that the USCIS administrative appeals Office's th- their decision to uphold a denial of an H-1B petition for a general operations manager, which was classified as a restaurant ma- manager, which required a bachelor's degree in hospitality and management was arbitrary and capricious. And the court ultimately ruled for the restaurant because of several important factors One of the factors was the discussion in the OOH, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, about what the factors were, what what the job duties were, the employer's own detailed description of the job duties. But also important is the fact that the USCIS had been approving H-1B petitions for this exact same employer and for the same worker and essentially the same job in the past. And so they came out and said that it was arbitrary and capricious, and they actually overruled the Administrative Appeals Office in that case.
1: Thank you, Aaron. So now I'm going to invite Aaron to, uh, Adam to talk a little bit maybe about the deference memo, which is, can be used as an important tool in litigation, and how, how can we use that as an important tool, Adam?
2: So the deference memo, which was gone for a few years, basically says that USCIS will, in fact, follow a past decision. So if they've approved a the case before, they, they'll um, – be inclined to approve it again. So um, because a denial decision doesn't just get to be issued for a change, they have to actually give a reason for it. So this memo is, in fact, probably a big reason why we're seeing fewer RFEs being issued by USCIS, because when you're, you're filing an extension for an existing employee or even a, a change of employer for somebody who's held h H&M status already, a lot of the issues, whether it's your, the company's position or the individual's credentials, They've all been vetted by immigration before, so that the existence of the deference memo and having the prior approvals on these different issues, even if they're in different petitions, could potentially be a means for challenging USCIS coming back and denying denying a petition. Now, we've had experience in using the memo and challenging it. Ideally, you want to try to raise this issue in responding to the RFE. Um, I think everybody's familiar with uh, this issue coming up. Um, in H-1Bs, but also even in the context of L-1, which, you know, is, and this is something that can be used because, you know, oftentimes, you know, USCIS will raise an issue in an L-1B petition or an L-1A petition besides H-1B, where they start questioning managerial experience abroad, which has already been vetted, um, the uh, credentials of the individual, and so all of the, and they're not raising a specific problem, they just ask this generic question. And I've, had, I've spoken with people who said, did I do something wrong? And, you know, you haven't. There is just USCIS does, in fact, just ask the question without giving anything any specific. And who knows why, but the fact that you've had this previous decision and there is this deference memo does give you that extra leverage in fighting back.
1: Great. Thank you, Adam. I'm going to jump to now right to control. Um, only because I know we're kind of not short on time, but we're getting a little bit close. We try to have these discussions between 30 to 45 minutes and I see we're almost at the 30 minute mark at this point and we still have quite a bit of uh, topics to discuss. I'm trying to go to, I think we can all go a little bit faster and try to cut short. So of course the right to control has historically been a very challenging part of an H-1B petition. It was a problem that had predated the prior Trump administration, but with the loss two years ago in March of 2020 uh, uh, of the USCIS to the IT Serve Alliance case, which in federal court, the Trump administration had to issue a memo withdrawing the prior control memos. And this, of course, resulted in a significant drop in the number of times when control can come up as an RFE or an issue for denial. Um, and when the USCIS asked, for evidence about a petitioner's end client, which is now be, seems to again be slowly coming back. While this is a question that will be sometimes asked, the frequency of this problem has somewhat decreased. Again, very, very briefly, the IT server Alliance basically uh, in the decision that was issued at this point, it's over two years ago, the Washington DC federal court ruled uh, in IT server lines versus CISNA that the Trump administration could not use the USCIS memo from 2018 on contracts or the 2020, 2010 control memo, um, the famous, famous memo that we all knew started all of these RFEs and denials of H1 petitions. Uh, on H1 petitions, the court said that the current USCIS interpretation of the employer employee relationship requirement isn't, isn't consistent with its own regulation. Um, and it was announced and applied without rulemaking and hence cannot be enforced. The limitation of this decision was that it technically only applied to those cases that were part of the lawsuit, so USCIS potentially could apply this memo in other cases. However, since the USCIS settled the lawsuit by withdrawing the control and contract memos, we hope that this is somewhat a thing of the past. And, the, uh, you know, they were getting ready to return control as a requirement by changing the regulations, However, the Biden administration has now stopped that from happening, which is, I guess, good news for us. What about shortened duration of H-1B approvals, Aaron?
0: So this is, again, it's uh, this is a carryover that happened also, I think that was dealt with in the IT Server Alliance v. CISNA case. And there the court had also addressed the shortened duration of H-1B approvals. It said that the USCIS's requirements that employers provide proof of non-speculative work assignments For the duration of the visa period, it was not supported by statute or regulation, and it's arbitrary and capricious as applied to the plaintiff's visa petitions. These requirements were also announced and applied without rulemaking and cannot be enforced. So so there's two things that are going on. When they were looking at consulting companies, they were asking for detailed work assignments of every minute almost to show the full duration of time that the person was performing the work and they were targeting a particular type of employment structure, and they said that was arbitrary and capricious. Also, if you're going to change the rules, you need to go through notice and comment. There's a whole rulemaking process, and they were just ruling by memo. And, again, they said that that's not something that's permitted and can't be enforced. So that was a pretty big deal. In that case, the court concluded that this part of its decision by saying USCIS has the authority to grant H-1B visas for less than the requested three-year period, but it has to provide its reasoning behind any denials, even in whole or in part. So if you ask for three and they give you two years, they have to explain it. Uh, but thankfully right now, this doesn't appear to be a common problem anymore. Um, well, so The totally to... law firm has been successful on behalf of clients challenging denials involved with H1B petitions. Uh, but each one of these cases have to be evaluated on its facts by itself. Sometimes it may still be recommended to file a motion uh, to get certain documents including the record at USCIS because the court will ultimately make a decision based on the documents USCIS has at the time it made its decision to deny the case so that was my point that I was making but but please let's jump into AC21 litigation
1: yeah so just Adam can you share the case that multi-law firm was successful and what exactly the arguments you made and how we can try to uh, help uh, employers and employees understand
2: Sure. So, AC twenty one Green Card portability is available for the individual employee when they're typically when their I one forty is approved and the I forty five application is pending for at least one eighty days. And so, for while there are employers who will lose an employee, there are also uh, employers that will gain an employee in this situation. And so, um, what typically what in, in a, what will sometimes happen, but rarely, and we generally advise against it because of the risk, is that if the I-140 and the I-45 is been currently filed, as in this case that we litigated, but the I-140 is still pending when, the, when it's pending at 180 days, and the individual ported in this case, notified USCIS using the I-45J supplement form. The issue in this particular case, and this person came to us several years after all these events unfolded, Um, He notified the USCIS about the porting, and then USCIS issued an RFE on the still pending I-140 petition, but they sent it to the petitioner, his old employer, and he didn't know about this, Um, and the employer didn't respond, and then USCIS denied the I-140 petition, um, but they left the 45 pending, so the individual didn't actually learn about it until years later when he was appearing at an interview on his 45 and was told by the officer that, sorry, We can't make a decision yet because, you know, we don't have your file and your I-140, it looks like your I-140 was denied. So, um, thankfully, the 45 was not denied, but we took the case to federal court and argued to the court that because of the old USDIS memos that were in place from, like, 2005 um, and in addition to the existing law that we argued incorporated those memos, that once he ported and notified USDIs of the porting, the USDIs had an obligation to send a copy of that RFE to the individual, the the I-140 beneficiary slash 45 applicant, and give him a chance to respond to those issues. So um, ultimately, we were successful, and the judge ruled that, yes, in fact, in this situation, the um, I-140 beneficiary slash I-45 applicant, it does qualify um, as somebody who gets to get the RFP and also responds to the RFP. So um, I think the lessons from this is, one, that um, it's possible to reinterpret the guidance and regulations that USDIS has in a way that is advantageous to you, whether it's in the context of AC21 or something else, Um, and that um, sometimes bringing something that might be a little bit of a long shot to federal court can still work out in your favor and potentially get the result that you want
1: thank so, you adam um, yes absolutely mm-hmm. and that proves that you know if something's clearly going to impact you and your life whether it's you as an employer or you as an individual or family members challenge it because just because there's a law and an interpretation doesn't mean that it's accurate and stuff has to make common sense and judges and courts tend to generally prefer something that makes that's consistent with the rule of law. So if you are truly impacted and you're willing to take the risk, then go ahead and challenge it because it is only by challenging that we expand the rule and expand the law and expand rights for everybody involved. And similarly, I know many of you are familiar with the idea of public charge. Uh, Public charge is where you have to show that you will not become a public charge or financial liability of the United States by getting the H-1 petition approval or getting the green card uh, becoming a lawful permanent resident of the US uh, of the United States. And with the Biden administration coming to the office, many of you are aware of that onerous very 18 page form called the form I-944 to show public charge, to to overcome the public charge liabilities uh, of the prior administration. It's now luckily, fortunately no longer a concern, but it is still important to consider which is our understanding that USCIS is looking into some kind of a public charge regulation and for now there is no such rule but experience proves that the implementation and enforcement of a rule can certainly either be slowed or delayed or even completely eliminated uh, by pursuing lawsuits against the federal government in federal court um and one of them is using litigation to challenge fraud findings or other issues i know aaron you want to touch upon it briefly and then adam
0: no, absolutely and just i just wanted to piggyback on what you said for a moment Sheila, because the i-944s was really incredible because the the litigation slowed everything down and then the change of administration it just it just became a thing of the past which is was an enormous benefit uh fraud is another issue it's uh Secret fraud finding. So, if you get a fraud finding, a fraud finding is an enormous. Uh, sorry, a fraud finding is an enormous deal, because a fraud finding can be a permanent bar. And so, if you don't know where the fraud finding came from or how the fraud finding uh, came about, it's many times difficult to be able to um, to try to countermand the finding or to try to come back and prove that there was no fraud. So when that happens, sometimes even the information that's gathered is from other government agencies, and the ability to go and to um, to use litigation as a tool to find out the information and the details and to overcome that is an enormously big deal as well.
1: Yeah, and Adam, what about yeah. the
2: steps? So, right, so, you know, the law does have some steps that the government is supposed to go through, but what we've seen is that quite commonly... Uh, people will have a fraud finding made against them that unfortunately they don't actually discover until they travel abroad and apply for a visa and get told your visa is refused because of a fraud so we've we've successfully challenged those findings um, by the um, by the government and gotten it reversed where and, and these are particularly in cases where nobody had any idea about where it came from or anything it, it's certainly potentially possible in cases where somebody has a fraud finding and knows the reason to try and challenge it, but that's sort of a different, that's a different creature, so to speak. But, um, if it's secret and you suddenly discover a surprise, that, that's inconsistent with the law. And it's something that you should definitely consider challenging because if the government has something against you, they're supposed to present it and give you an opportunity to, to defend yourself against them um, going ahead with making the findings.
1: Makes perfect sense. In fact, in the case, just today that I was talking to the client, the same issue. They just uh, claim to have, you know, revoked a petition. Nobody knows it. Nobody has answers. They assume it's fraud, but we don't. They don't know what fraud. No notice of intention to revoke. Nothing. So very good points. Uh, so obviously, to sort of in somewhat in conclusion here, we're saying, you know, what's the lesson here? Don't be afraid when you think something's truly been taken away. If you believe the government's overstepping the boundaries, doing something illegal, unlawful. Con- violating their own re- statute, the regulations, um, something that doesn't make common sense, something that's going to impact your business as an employer or your family and your livelihood as an employee, uh, be, don't be afraid to challenge it. That's one of the wonderful qualities and the benefits of living in a true democracy. Believe in yourself. Believe in that it can be a good option. Use it as an important aspect. But, of course, from a practical point of view, you don't want to spend thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars if you truly believe that there's a zero chance of success, unless you're trying to make a point or open the floodgates for other issues and do it more as a strategic and tactical issue, that we at the multi law firm have done on behalf of our clients. Um, I know we can continue on and on because it's such a exciting hot topic issue, but on behalf of myself, Sheila Muthi, on behalf of Ann Finkelstein, our managing attorney, uh, Adam Rosen, one of our um, um, assistant managing attorneys and all of us at the Muthi Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us for today's discussion. If there's ever we can help you at Muthi Law Firm in filing a case or in wanting to consult to discuss the options, please don't hesitate to contact us. And as always, we wish you a wonderful, happy spring to take care of each other and do amazing things to protect the rule of law. Thank you. This is a free
0: service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our
1: firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.